You're listening to 100 p.m. at Leading the Product, Australia's premier product management conference. Episode 8. One hundred PM is the fastest growing resource for learning to think and do like an expert product manager. Visit us on the web and be sure to subscribe to our show by searching One Hundred PM on iTunes or Google Play. For more information about today's episode, head over to One Hundred Product Managers dot com slash Leading the Product. Today's guest is Jason Shen. Let's dive right in and say hello to Jason. Hi, my name is Jason Shen. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Headlight, an on-demand platform for evaluation of technical candidates. Is that too long? <laughs> I th- it sounds like you've said that once or twice. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you're a co-founder yeah. and a CEO. You have to just get that pitch down. <laughs> what, uh, what's Headlight? Well, we focus on helping companies scale the first round technical screen for positions like product managers, engineers, and data scientists. What's the problem that you're essentially solving and and who are the customers? Yeah, so there's two problems I think we're really solving. The first is around fidelity. So it is this idea that you hire people because they're good at their job, whether it's product management, being a great data scientist, or, or building great products with software. That doesn't mean that they're great interviewers and great evaluators of talent. And that's not necessarily something they enjoy doing. That's not something they are incentivized to be good at. And so when you're a fast-growing company, you actually are creating some interesting circumstances for yourself when you put a lot of these folks, pull them away from what they wanted to be doing and make them do this other thing that they aren't necessarily great at. And then you wonder about the quality of the outcomes from that process. So what we do is we put a consistent system in place for that first technical screen. We're not saying you're never going to meet these people and we, we do everything for you. We're saying the noisiest part of the process is one that's going to be more structured, more systematic and and based on data that we have from evaluating a lot of people. So that leads to the second part, which is the problem we're solving is time, right? Everyone's wondering, how can we get more out of our team? How can we build things faster? And when you have to interrupt your engineers again and again, because you're focused, you're trying to get them in these tech screens, which half the time the person turns out to be not what you're looking for. That's a lot of interruptions. That's a lot of distractions. And that's not helping the team perform at their best. So by taking away that noisy part of the process, we are helping teams accelerate. Yeah. Recruitment is an ongoing investment in time for sure. Is the company then a technology platform or it's a professional services layer or it's both of those things? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of both, right? Because we have built technology that makes the take-home assignment process a more pleasant experience. I wouldn't say it's necessarily enjoyable since you do have to work hard as a candidate and no amount of product is going to change that. But we do create ways for the brand to express itself, to make candidates feel at ease and understand what they're they're doing and make that process smooth. So I think that that's something that a company would otherwise have to invest in themselves. But it's also about our network of experts who are professional software engineers or product managers in their own right. And 
the fact that you're benefiting from their experience reviewing dozens, hundreds of these kinds of submissions. And that's something that you wouldn't necessarily have in your own company. Your background is interesting. You know, this is 100 p.m. We talked to product managers. You've worked as a product manager. You were at Percolate. You were at Etsy. But you've also got all of this business stuff. It's like you were in business. You were starting businesses. You've you've worked in customer acquisition. Like, what's your identity, Jason? Do you suffer from an identity crisis? Oh, you're going real deep here. Yeah, just I'm not ready. I saw pain and I'm pushing. (laughs) Well, that's what product managers do. We look for pain. Absolutely. So... For me to define myself is is very hard because like entrepreneurs and like product managers, we come from interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary backgrounds. And it's not just like, oh, I was an engineer and then I saw product as being exciting and then I moved into product. That's like a relatively simple transition. Um, I've done a little bit of a, a lot, but I think what unifies a lot of it is the idea of enabling others to perform at their best. I think that to me unifies a lot of the things that I've done, whether it's in marketing, you know, helping the product team communicate their value as best as possible to the customer, or whether it's um, speaking and writing where I'm, you know, sharing what I'm learning to help my audience expand their abilities, or whether here with this business, it's really, I think, about Unlocking, but also just helping surface the latent abilities of those around us and and giving them a chance to shine. And, you know, so we can have great things within us, but we don't always have a great way to make that scene for others. And so what I hope I'm doing with Headlight is enabling people to show their potential. It's interesting because we spend a lot of the time on this show exploring ways that people can kind of break into product management or make those pivots like you described, going from engineering into product or from user experience design into product. One thing that we talk about less, but I think that you can offer some great perspective on is, so you want to go bigger than product, right? So product takes up all of these disciplines and there's ownership in the role, but it's very different from being a CEO and building a company. So I'd love to hear from you about what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in sort of growing out of a product specific role to a true owner role? That would be part one. And then part two will probably be something along the lines of like, how do you do it? Sure. So I think that my background has helped me understand the responsibility of being a leader and an owner from a f- early on. My first job out of school was actually running the business side of my college newspaper, which while it sounds maybe small potatoes, was a situation where, you know, it's a, it's a seven-figure revenue business where you're reporting to a board of directors. You have monthly meetings. I had to report on the financials of the business. It was during the Great Recession, so the numbers are looking terrible. And I had to stand up to the board and and report on that and talk about what we were doing to address that. And I think that was a really important experience to have and, and helped me think like an owner. I've also done a lot of side projects, and I think that side projects are a 
secret weapon for an ambitious person who wants to get into product or who wants to become an entrepreneur is because a side project is a chance to have complete ownership. You decide what your product's going to be called. You decide how you're going to reach out to people. You decide how you want to support them and serve them, who you'll take money from, who you'll reject, how you deal with complaints, how you scale and grow. And those are decisions that no one can give you the right answer to, and no one's going to save you if you screw up. And so even in the product manager role where we actually do have a lot on the line and product managers are accountable for the performance of the product often, you're still protected. You know? And once you become the CEO of a company or other kinds of ownership roles, the buck stops there. You know, there's no excuse. There's no protection. You face the brunt of your decisions. And to do that in a way that's a little bit more safe, whether it's starting a blog or a podcast or starting a meetup group or starting some kind of workshop or training program, those are ways for you to go beyond just a functional area and take control and responsibility for the whole life cycle of a, of a business. Did you go out and raise money for Headlight or did you, yeah, you did? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of value in bootstrapping and the first couple months of the business, we were just, you know, living off of our savings. You know, Etsy was not in a great stock position when I left the business and it's since roared back and good for them. And I'm happy for those who are still there, but, you know, I didn't see the upside for that. And at some point I had to, you know, raise money for the business. And the first time we raised money for RideJoy, my previous company, we went through the Y Combinator program. The way I describe it is, it was like we were surfing and we just caught this great wave and the wave's just taking you. You don't know what you're doing, but you're something. You're on the board and then at some point the wave kind of pushes out and now you, you're just standing in, the, in still water and you just crash. This time around, I feel like we're in, you know, a two-person kayak and, um, you know, we've, we've since hired people, but me and my co-founder. And while we know how to row and we know where we're going, roughly, and it's, it's tiring, but we, we can do it, right? And certainly it makes sense to add additional financial resources and mentorship to, to support you. So, yeah, we raised a little bit of money, not as much as we raised with RideJoy, and, but I expect we'll raise again as we demonstrate more proof points and, and achieve more milestones. What, what are the major milestones like for, for the business right now? Like if, if six months were to elapse and some significant things happened that were joyous, what would those be? Yeah. So today we work with a little under a dozen companies that are, um, we're their technical screening partner. And these are series B, series C companies that are growing quickly, maybe go through these spurts where they need to hire 10 15 people at a time, and then maybe they they cool off for a bit and then come back. And so our business is a bit um, bumpy or spiky. You know, there'll be times where we've got work and there's times that we're, we're not. I think we're starting to talk to some bigger companies, some companies that they're just always hiring, right? Because they're just so big. There's turnover, there's, there's things that need to happen. So for us, if we could land a couple of those bigger players, continue to grow our sort of medium-sized businesses that, you know, over time it smooths out because you've got enough customers and that becomes a pretty smooth thing. But we can prove that a large organization needs and wants what we have. I think that would be a really powerful proof point for us. Is there a value proposition 
to the candidates that separates what you're doing at Headlight from, you know, all the infinite variations of recruitment opportunities from just straight up software to traditional kind of headhunters? Sure. So, you know, one company that we look at is called Vettery, and they have built a, a name, especially in the New York area, but also into other tech markets as a source of candidates. But all they really do is, and there's a number of companies that are doing this now, is email you and say, hey, do you want opportunities? Do you want to be considered for things? We'll put your your name and your resume on this list, and then maybe we'll email companies or companies will log in and look at your stuff, and then maybe they'll request an introduction. So it's low friction to join, but also low barrier to entry. And what is the candidate really getting out of this? For us, we upfront are asking candidates for more since we're saying, hey, you have to do this work. We're giving you this challenge. You're going to have to uh, put together a presentation. You're going to have to write some software. But what we do offer is a more holistic evaluation. You know that the company is invested to have this reviewed by a professional, and you're actually going to see that evaluation and you're going to be able to look whether or not you move forward with the company, you're going to be able to say, hey, okay, this is where I did well. This is where I could improve. And so often we do we do an interview or we do a, a take home and we send it to the company and then it's just crickets. And that's super frustrating for candidates and, and makes them, you know, stay at their firm because like who has time to, to do all that work and then get no response. And so that feedback I think is, is really powerful. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if people's angry rants on LinkedIn say anything, it's that they're frustrated with the status quo of the recruitment process in general and feedback loops. I mean, we know this from being product managers. It's such an important part of the process and love that. Um, talk to us about your talk. So we're here at Leading the Product. You're a keynote. Congratulations. Thanks. What's the name of your talk? It was called Product Madness, Five Ways to Bring Sanity Back into the PM Hiring Process. Great. Give it to us. Yeah, give it to us. <laughs> Do the talk there we go. all over again. No, give us the um, give us the super friendly cheat sheet version for our listeners who who didn't have the good fortune to hear you, but who can obviously stand to benefit. This is such an important topic and, and yeah. on everyone's mind. So the main thesis of the talk is that product is a hard role to hire for whether you're on the hiring manager side and trying to make that decision of who's the, the right person and on the side of someone who's trying to enter this field. So if it gives you any solace to know that the person on the other side is stressing out about making this work too, um, that's definitely there. And then what I point out is that we often have overblown expectations for what a product manager needs to be able to do or experience that they need to have. I call this hiring, hunting unicorns. And I say, we need to stop doing that because no one's going to have it all. And if they do have it all, they're going to cost way more than you can afford. So rather than try to get it all, you want to make trade-offs, pick the traits that really matter, consider the candidates that are inside your own company. You know, my story is that I wanted to be a product manager. I felt that I had what it took. I even interviewed for some PM roles and ultimately took a marketing role, but because for some reason, my even though I was doing a great job in the role that I was in and the company had these product openings that were just sitting for months, they didn't want to move me through. And so they lost an employee that 
by all accounts, they felt they were happy with and was doing a great job because they didn't give that person a chance to show themselves. So the final point is, if you are going to consider internal candidates, one way to do that that's more fair and unbiased is to use take-homes. It doesn't have to be through headlight. You can use any kind of you know, take-home process, but one where uh, you can evaluate internal and external candidates in an unbiased way because you don't know who's who. You just have somebody else, you number them one, two, three. You have somebody in your company who doesn't know who these are. Look at them. And that's going to give you a way better sense of who's going to do well in the role than the sort of comforting stories they could tell. Why are you so passionate about hiring? I mean, you you know, you're you're out on the road, you're giving this talk, you've built a business that's entirely in service of of helping people find good jobs and, and helping organizations find right talent. Like, is it a passion place or you're just like, oh, I saw an opportunity and I thought about how to build something. Totally mercenary play. <laughs> the money's here. If the money was in trash, I'd be in trash. No, just kidding. Um, absolutely. You know, when I started my last company, we were doing long distance ride sharing. We kind of liked the idea of the collaborative economy and the sharing economy and all that. And when that business didn't work the way we thought it would, but there was opportunities to pivot into other areas. Maybe we do carpooling. Maybe we do, you know, on-demand valet parking or some other thing. And we couldn't get excited about those businesses. And we realized that this was sort of a fragile idea in the sense that we liked one version of it, but the other versions we were like, yeah, whatever. When I decided to start my next business or when I was thinking about starting my next business, I really wanted to pick an area that I could feel excited about and passionate about for years because that's how long it takes to even start getting some traction for ideas. I mean, look at the story of Airbnb or Etsy and, and they want to make it seem like an overnight success, but you know, Joe Gebbia says it's a 10 years to an overnight success. So hiring to me is all about identifying potential, creating opportunities for people. And, you know, when you get the right people in an organization, that organization's effectiveness can be transformed. And when someone gets a chance to do something that they're good at or could be really good at, it changes their life. So it feels like a win-win to me and a place where I want to be. So it's a, it's a perfect set up for a segment that we do on this show, which is called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job, and, and thinking about offering some unique framing here given your expertise. So one thing that you probably know better than most people is what works in hiring and what doesn't. And I know that a lot of our listeners are people who are you know, new to product management or aspiring to get into product management and struggle with getting hired. So what advice can you offer to people about what they're doing wrong or what they maybe need to think about doing differently to start to become more attractive to employers to break through some of the noise and competition of other candidates? Yeah, so three things I'd recommend. The first is to gather intel. It's to not just look at the job opening, but to try to read their blog, try to uh, meet with people who either work at that company or who have worked at that company, 
get insight into what that company seems to value for the people that they hire? Did they just get a new VP who really loves data-driven, blah, 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 and, and so that's what they're going to need to see. There's so much more behind that that one page on the website that says what the official requirements are, and you have to go find that. Just think of it as like customer discovery, right? You're discovering the real needs of your customer. The second thing is that you have to show a lot of enthusiasm for the role. And that's not just in the, I love this company and I want to work here, but, you know, aligning your their story with your story, showing that you've taken actual steps to learn about the business and try the product and, you you know, do certain things. And, and you know, at Etsy, I, I built this whole website from scratch when I was interviewing there to, to show them I had read their S1 filings and I had all these product ideas. And I remember I was going into an, uh, a final round with another company and I'll leave that company nameless. It was a good company, but I was just, I wanted that Etsy roll so bad and I didn't take my own advice and I kind of just didn't really do as much prep for that second company. And I remember at one point they asked me, okay, well, if you're a product manager here, what are three things that you want to change about our product? And my face just like collapsed <laughs> because I was like, I can't think of anything. Like, what's your product? Anyway? <laughs> How does it work again? I, I saw it. It kind of, you know, it was an old, it was like dated UI, but I didn't have any insight. Right. And I, so I wasn't, I didn't do my homework and I clearly wasn't that enthusiastic for the company and the other person could tell clearly. And it wasn't like I wasn't capable of doing a great job there, but I hadn't done the necessary requisite requirements in order to, to be successful there. So, so showing your enthusiasm, both in your demeanor and also in actions that you can take. And then finally, the third point related to showing your enthusiasm is to uh, find ways to make your skills visible. This is something that it's really hard for product managers to do. When you're in design, you've got a portfolio. When you're in engineering, you've got GitHub and you've got side projects and, you know, coding challenges are much more prevalent. With product, what is a product manager's portfolio? I mean, is it an export of my calendar, all my meetings? Is it emails that <laughs> I, I sent? Not. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, is it my JIRA backlog and, and you know, the requirements that, you know, it's, it's very hard to make that tangible and make that visible. But that is the role of product is uh, if you want to, you know, be successful, you're going to have to in a succinct and probably visual way, describe the value of the product, of the work that you've done, of the work that your team's done. And you know, to the degree that you can demonstrate the skills, uh, whether it's data proficiency or marketing ability or, or, or what have you, and package that, that's gonna go a long way in putting people at ease that you're the right person for the role. Right. So in the context of learn the job, a lot of the time I, I describe this as places where product managers fall down or, or typically make mistakes. But I think it would be interesting to hear from you on when it's not a good fit, right? When someone hires or, or is hiring now to replace a product manager that didn't work out, what are some of the reasons that you've seen show up for why a product manager A wasn't a good fit for company B? So I think you have to look at a person's, not just what they say, but where their life has taken them and, and see if uh, 
you know, you you want people where this role is going to be an exciting professional growth opportunity because changing jobs is is a lot of effort and and uh, if this doesn't feel like a important and good sort of trajectory building on the trajectory that they're on or want to be on, then if they're not going to stay, I, I, this isn't a product manager position. This is an engineer though, that uh, was hired onto a team that I was on and I looked at their background and they had worked at, you know, the MIT media lab and they had designed games and, you know, it was a very creative person. And at the time our team was really kind of in the skunk works of like managing internal platforms and tools and building stuff that was like important for the business, but you needed someone who appreciated that and who cared about that and who wanted to do that. And I remember when this person was hired, I went to the engineering manager and I said, are you sure you want to hire this person? You know, do you think they'll stay? And the person, and they thought they would stay and, you know, and this person did a good job, did a fine job, but eventually left on their own. And to me, that felt like it could have been seen in advance. You could have recognized that unless you're putting this person on something really more cutting edge that they weren't going to be happy. And maybe we told, I don't know what they were told. I don't know what the original plan was, but what ended up happening was they were on this team doing this kind of work and, you know, they ultimately left. And so that's one I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but yeah, no, I mean, it, absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever make any big mistakes working as a product manager? I mean, always, there's always mistakes, <laughs> right? And any that you look back and you're just like, oh, well, I've learned. Yeah. Um, this is one where I don't even know what the right answer is. I just know that what I did probably wasn't the right answer, but we, Etsy went through this period where they were going to launch this big buyer facing. Well, yeah, we, we launched it. It's all public. So we, we launched this craft marketplace called Studio. And it was trying to break out the fact that we had handmade goods and vintage goods. And that was very different from craft supplies. One of them is like full on finished things. The other is like raw materials to make something else. Right. And a sort of long time product manager that was well-respected, took lead of this project, and it just started growing and growing and growing. And every, you know, it was named one of the top priorities for the company. And so every team started to like get sucked into building things for this product to support the the shift that it was going to make. And I asked at one point, I was like, why don't you just do an MVP? Like, why can't you do like a small version of this and test it? And they made the whole case about it needed to be from day one, you know, integrated and have huge selection and all these things can't be possible unless you, I was like, okay. Uh, and so one is like, should I have pushed back harder? Should I have tried to go to other people within the company and be like, I don't think this is the right strategy. I think we should be launching a small version of it rather than sucking up all these resources and doing this mega integrated launch from, the, you know, as the first step. I didn't do that. I said, well, you know, everyone says this is what the company should be doing. And so that's one. And then two, we got pulled into doing a lot of work to support some of these things. And I, I wonder how much. Um, so fast forward is that the launch was not a success. Uh, we spent a lot of money and a lot of time and, and did not see the returns that we wanted. And 
The result was that a lot of teams had very little to show for themselves. Like, what the hell were you doing for the last year? And it's like, well, we were building integrations for this thing that is is tanked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I wonder, you know, what I could have done to protect our team. Was was it just inevitable that my role was to try to make this thing successful? Or, you know, how how do I, I don't know what the right answer is. I just know that having seen this sort of slow motion train wreck happen, it is hard to know. It's hard to believe that what I did was clearly the optimal approach. Right. What would present day Jason do? If you were back in that scenario, but you, you know, all the additional wisdom and and bruises that you've accumulated since then, would you push back? I think I would have at least put together a memo or a presentation or something and shared it with a handful of folks that I trusted weren't going to just like put me out on, out on it and, and or be offended by it. But I think I, I would, one, try to articulate what I think are weaknesses about this approach. And two, I would have... Um, try to save some space within my own team to launch a few things and, and document that we had launched a few things that were like more aligned to what our actual original charter of our team was. And to just have that in the case of, okay, this really blows up. I can pull out at least a handful of things to say like, hey, we added value in these ways outside of this huge caping hole that was, you know, the big project. Yeah, I mean, I love that you shared this in particular, because it's one of the number one things that I get asked, you know, in my classrooms is, and frankly, just hear from PMs all the time, irrespective of of what level of seniority they have, is they, they fundamentally disagree with the strategy or the approach, but they either aren't doing anything about it or they don't feel as though they can. Is there recognizing that, you know, you're going to make the right call or you're not going to make the right call. You know, you, you had your own reflection looking back. Is there a way to get better at being braver in these contexts or, you know, should we just be like, not my problem, not my company, hope it doesn't fail? Yeah, it's a mix. I see, I have friends who burn out because they care so much about their company and they fight so hard for something because they think that's the right thing. And that takes a big toll on them. I've seen people who were in a great position and yeah, they disagreed with leadership and they just quit. And they didn't say, look, I'm learning a lot. And if that person wants to, if I'm going to, if I've argued with them and they still disagree and they want to go down this route, I can learn and, and get paid while they do that. That'll still be good for me. And, and so I've seen that approach. One thing I heard from a senior designer who was at Etsy for a long time now at Airbnb said was that, you know, you get one to two times a year to bang the table about what you believe. And so you can't do it all the time. But if you never do it, you also relinquish your ability to do that. If you're always the team player, then it's no good. But it is sort of like good to to look for opportunities where you can set a precedent and say like every once in a while, I am going to push back and I'm going to push back respectfully, but I'm going to make it clear that I'm not always going to just go along with things, but I will ultimately support the decision if if we don't come around on it. What do you love about product businesses? 
I think there is so much room for creativity in great product businesses. I think that as an industry, we're still at our infancy and there's so many, I love, um, you know, we were, we got to hear a little bit of Gibbs uh, sort of case studies of, of Netflix and the choices that they had to make under different circumstances and, and the outcomes. My and, brain is still spinning from that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the example of Amazon potentially being sued because of the way the algorithm was set up to uh, send DVDs to different people for popular movies, right? Those are really interesting decisions. And I'm whether it's big things like that or little things like there's a website called like big little details or little design details or something like that. And it's just things like, oh, um, Chrome sh puts a little volume icon on the tabs that are making noise. So if you hear things playing and you're like, where the hell is that? You can find it and close it. Maybe that was a designer's decision. Maybe that was an engineer's decision. Maybe that was a product manager's decision. But little things like that are part of what make the products we experience so great and to have the opportunity to shape people's experiences in big ways and in little ways is one of the coolest things about being a PM. Yeah, that's a beautiful framing. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. There's so much creativity in the space. And, uh, you know, I think for folks that work outside of it or don't consider themselves technical, certainly they don't understand what we do a lot of the time. It doesn't necessarily look like a creative role. It's tremendously. It's why there's already all these liberal arts students that end up as product managers. Sure. Poets and English majors, product management. Uh, do you have any books, blogs, podcasts, resources that um, just have been impactful in your life in any way that you would love to share with our audience. We have a growing list at 100productmanagers.com slash resources. doesn't have to be product specific. Hmm. One book that I have read recently is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And he's a former FBI hostage negotiator. I think that negotiation is one of the biggest responsibilities of a product manager to advocate for your team. It's also great when you're trying to move into a new role since uh, your salary is so much uh, set by that initial set of conversations. So I'm always on the lookout for great books on negotiation, and that's definitely one that I like. There's another book called Yes, 50 uh, Scientifically Proven Ways to Persuade, something like that. And it's by Robert Cialdini, and it's sort of takes, you know, he's the legendary psychologist who wrote Influence, and I'm sure you already have that on the list, but he kind of breaks down the concepts and then gives you tiny little micro examples of, of persuasion and, and shaping consumer behavior, like the difference between saying, you know, don't take rocks from this forest. Every year, hundreds of thousands of rocks are taken and, and that uh, really hurts the ecosystem. That is social proof that tells you that Lots of people do it. So if you do it, you're just going to be one in 100,000 people. And clearly the forest isn't dead yet. So it's fine, right? And you're reversing that sign to saying 99% of people do the right thing and don't take rocks from the forest. <laughs> and now you've positioned the right thing as being in the majority. So having those kinds of examples, I think, are a lot better than just reading the theory around social proof. 
when people see things, they feel aligned to those things, you know? So yeah. I think that's a great book. Well, and, and, and what that brings up too is just how necessary it is to have the blend of tactical ideas alongside the strategic, because if we're learning product management, we're trying to get better or level up in our skills, we can read all these books, we can come to conferences like this one and, and listen to all of these talks. But sometimes like what we just really want to know is like, how exactly should I write this copy or how exactly should I set up this tagging plan? Yes. I was reading something recently on someone was talking about this on Twitter. And it's essentially the idea that before you can have theories and frameworks, you have to have facts and you have to have like stuff to work off of, to build your theory. Right. You know, the, the idea of evolution is based on like, okay, well we observe the traits do this. And like, they happen in all these different circumstances with mice, with plants, with X, Y, Z. And then you kind of, from all that information, you ladder up and you're like, okay, I think that, that actually there's a mechanism by which, you know, but without those facts, you can't get to the theory. And I feel like so much of product, learning about product, I'm putting that in quotes, learning about product is learning these frameworks. And without the stories and the details of, of how launches happen and, and what you do. And the frameworks don't make that much sense. And I do think that that is why a lot of hiring managers want experience in product managers because they basically say, I want you to have seen some shit go down and, and to, to use that to inform what you do now. But you can get that from talking to other product managers, things like this where you're hearing the real talk, you know, reading books where they do spill the beans and doing side projects where you can make your own mistakes and be like, oh crap, like I need to have a checklist when I launch things because otherwise I like miss all these steps and gee whiz, like now I don't have to think, you know, you can, you can roll that into your, your, your actual work as a PM. So getting those data points through various means is important as much as the frameworks and the, the two by twos and all of that Venn diagrams and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, jump in and do it. Yes. Jason, last question for you. Is there a mantra, personal or professional, that you use to kind of guide you through the world? Yeah. One thing that we believe a lot at, at our company, and it's because I believe it personally, is this idea of showing and telling. It's not just one or the other. And so at Headlight, our shirts say, show your work. And, you know, that's a, it's a playful thing around, you know, math. You can't just say 72.5, that's the answer. You know, you got to show how you got to that. that. And that's about the idea that we, we, you want to see how people think. You want to judge people on, on how they think and how they work and not just on results and not just on how well they've sort of like polished up their resume and can kind of sweet talk their way through situations. But you want to see how they operate in real situations. So that's certainly part of how I try to operate. Yeah, show your work. Jason Shin, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Headlight is the company based in New York City. If you haven't heard of it, check it out. If you're looking for work, check it out. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store, at Google Play, or on Stitcher, and leave us a great review to help other listeners discover us more easily. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com, or visit us on the web. <laughs>